Uh, anybody know what this is? Thanks. Thank you. Anybody ever seen one of these before? Any, anybody ever had one in their home? No, for real. I mean, seriously. Like this. Oh, come on. When you were a kid, really? Your grandma did? You, you have one in your house now? Oh. <laughs> yeah, this is a 1940s uh, Ericsson phone. It works. It's pretty cool. I, well, I think it's cool. You know why, though? I'm a geek. You know why? Because it reminded me of uh, Superman. Do you guys ever watch that with George Reeves? This was kind of fun like he had on his desk. But, but my kids were in my office recently, and I had this in my office, and they said, Dad, how do you work that? And I just laughed, and I said, you dial it. And they said, what does that mean? They said that. What does that mean? Dial it. Think about it for a minute. They, they'd seen this, but they didn't know what it was. They didn't know how to work it. And when I said dial it, that didn't mean anything to them. That phrase didn't mean anything to them. So I showed them how to do it. You know, in case you don't know, you don't have to admit it if you don't know. But, you know, the one, you go like this, and then the two, and then the three. So I was explaining it to them. And the four, and then the five, and then, like, you go on up, and they said, wow, wouldn't that be horrible if you had, like, nines in your number? It would take, like, forever. I never thought about that. And then one of them said, what if you had to dial 911 and it was an emergency? You'd be going nine. <laughs> anyway, so I thought I would bring this tonight because obviously none of us use this type of phone anymore. In fact, when I got it, I had thought, oh, I'm going to convert this over and use it like in my office. I thought that'd be kind of cool because the ringer sounds cool, all of that. But guess what? There's an analog phone. They don't make these kind of connections anymore. It's digital now, so I can't even, I can't even use it. without. Like, you could do it maybe if you paid for an extra fax line, which would be ridiculous, but yes. Is that a four-pronged? Yep, it's a four-pronged pin. My house had only the four-pronged dollar. Oh, it did? Really? I had to have a regular phone jack. You had to have your jacks updated to, to work. Well, I brought this because now most people use phones like this. How many have a phone kind of like this, like a smartphone? Really, who, anybody here have a regular cell phone? Anybody here, let me, I'm just asking, I'm not, there's no judgment at all, but anybody not have a cell phone? You can be honest. Okay. Why are they laughing? Oh, that's mean. Okay, you do not have a cell phone. Okay. All right, anybody else? All right. Oh, well, yeah, sometimes they get turned off, that's true. Okay, well, most of us do have a cell phone now. How many of you do not, do not, do not have a home phone anymore? Do not. Okay. So all of us have now gone to cell phones only. And, and that's kind of the way of the world. They're saying that the percentage of houses now with regular phones in them is really, really dropping. And it's dropping huge. And it's changing the way everything works because everybody's now going to, you know, some type of portable cell phone. What's interesting about cell phones, you know, I know some of us might remember when they first started coming out with the portable phones, remember, in the big bag? Remember if the guys were really cool and rich, you'd carry around, like, it looked like a big purse with a big phone in it? And the phone, what was funny is the phone, those of you younger may not remember this, but the phone that was in, on it was like this big, the hand part. Then, they, you know, the phones kept getting smaller. Now they're super thin. I mean, look, this little phone is super thin, and they say that this phone has more computing power than Apollo 14 had. Hard to believe, isn't it? That the computing power it took to go to the moon was less than these phones are capable of. Just amazing what they can do. Just amazing. 
Not only that, I, I took a group to Africa, to Cameroon, Africa, about uh, two and a half years ago. And when we were there, we were just kind of amazed because, you know, we, some of us had our cell phones that would work internationally. Not everybody had one that would work internationally. But as we were there, we just started noticing that it seemed like almost every billboard, almost every advertisement was for cell phones. And we thought, my goodness, you know, we would think, you know, a lot of the people there, you know, they didn't have any transportation. They didn't, it didn't seem like they had much of anything, but everybody had a cell phone. It was really, it was strange. And what, what had happened was that market there in the, in the country of Cameroon, the, the dictator of Cameroon, he had signed an exclusive deal with this uh, phone company to bring in cell phones. And then here's what they do. We stopped at a roadside uh, market. And as we were there at the market, we were watching and what people were doing. They were transferring minutes from phone to phone, buying stuff at the market. So they would buy their minutes and then actually trade their minutes as, as money. It was amazing. I mean, we don't even do that here. And I was watching them thinking, oh my goodness, look at what is happening. I mean, the world is just changing so fast before our eyes. It's incredible. So with all that said, we're going to start a series tonight. And you see the little phone on the screen there shining up. And our little series that we're going to go into right now is going to be talking about phone apps. Can anybody tell me what a phone app is? Can you, Josh? I know you can. Right. He's right. And they say, you know, of course, you heard this phrase, there's an app for that. And app literally is an abbreviation for application. So application, the term's been used shorthand for application in the IT community for decades. However, it's become uh, newly popular for mobile applications and smartphones and tablets, especially due to the advent of Apple's iTunes App Store. Now, I know, how many have an iPhone? Anybody here? In the iTunes... (laughs) App Store, half a million apps. Now, what these applications are, they're mini programs. They're, they work basically like programs. And they can do a ton of things. It's amazing what they can do. Now, everything, like Joshua mentioned, some of them are fun. I mean, they've got everything from games to things to make your life more productive. You know, you can um, download your documents from your computer onto your phone, work on them, put them back on your computer. I mean, it's amazing. You can do your mileage, track your mileage. What, you know, I've got some goofy ones that are just... I don't rely on them, but they're helpful at times. I have a barcode reader that I use sometimes if I'm in the store and I'm looking at something and I wonder, hi, I wonder if that's the best price around. I can literally, I put my phone up to it. It literally uses the camera, takes a picture of that barcode, then it'll register it and then it'll tell me not only what other stores sell that item, but what price they sell them in for. I mean, what they sell it for. And it's accurate. I mean, I've used it and it works. It's incredible. I mean... some of the things are amazing that it'll do. I, I prefer my GPS, in fact, on my phone to the, the GPS I bought from Garmin because the GPS on my phone is connected to Google Maps. So I can literally speak into my phone, tell it where I want to go, and it using the GPS on my phone knows, like, for instance, if I put in there Gates Barbecue, which I would, uh, it would I would say Gates Barbecue. It knows where I am now, so it's going to take me to the closest Gates, which is over on 40 Highway, by the way, Instead of taking me to the one over on Brooklyn and 12th. You see how it does that? Incredible. And then as I'm driving there, it gives me turn-by-turn directions. And if I want to hear a voice tell me which, where to turn, it'll do that. And then as I get close, it'll, it'll show me a picture from Google Maps of the place I'm going to. So if I use it for a residence, it'll literally show me the house. 
So I know there's been times perhaps when you've been using GPS and maybe you get close but not to the right house. This will show you the right house. It's incredible. These apps are phenomenal, right? Now, some of them are stupid. I mean, some of them are, like I do have some apps that are farm animal sounds, which my kids really love to goof around with. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of goofy apps too. And, and as Josh mentioned, there's a ton of games. I mean, half a million apps in iTunes apps, but maybe you didn't know this, but 48% of the market in the, in the world belongs to actually now to Android. And Android system has far eclipsed the, uh, the Mac iOS and all that so that the, in the market in the world that they're about 19%. So while there's 500, half a million apps in the, I, in the Apple store, they, they, ha, they really don't know how many are in the Android market because it's an open Android market where people literally, much smarter than me, <laughs> make their own apps. And they can mess with these phones. In fact, I was looking online uh, today, just, I was looking online to just tell you guys some interesting apps and it was talking about how to free a phone like mine so that there's no limitation to the apps you can put on. I'm thinking, oh, I can't even, I don't even need to go there. That's too far, too much for me. But here's the point. The bottom line is that application is everything. And in fact, even with a phone like this, it's great to have a phone like this, but if I turn it on and I, I go to all my apps, all my applications, you'll see I have all, can you see all these? Okay. Well, I have that page, this page, this page, this page, this page, this page, this page, and that. Do I use them all? No. So some of them aren't any good, are they? I mean, I have them, but in effect, if I don't apply them, if I don't do anything with them, they don't do anything. I was talking with somebody not too long ago. I was, remember I mentioned to you guys the Bible app that I love, which is called that U version, which you can use off your computer or off your phone. And I, I use it for daily reading plans. I use it as a Bible. It's, it's got, man, it's got so many versions of the Bible. I can look at translations and compare them. Uh, it's amazing the, just, just how useful it is for the Word of God for me. So I was talking to somebody about it, and they were saying, oh, man, that would be great. I wish I had that. And I was looking at their phone. I said, you have it. <laughs> and they said, what? I said, you could have it. And I just got on their phone and showed them. And they actually had already downloaded it. They just didn't know the name of it. They, all they knew is it had a little icon that had a Bible on it. They didn't realize that's what it was. So think about it for a minute. Here's an app that they had not applied. Does that make sense? They had it. All along, they had it. It would be so similar to even carrying around a Bible itself, but if you never opened it, wouldn't it? And we kind of do the same thing with that, don't we? I mean, that's kind of how we live our lives. We have so many things that we have, or we know, or we believe, or we think, but then if we don't actually apply it, and we don't use the app. The app is supposed to be an application which is supposed to be applied and used. And if we don't, I mean, we, we live like that all the time. Mark Twain has said a lot of very amazing things, but one of the things he said is that, that we're all, most of us are functionally illiterate. And people, of course, got upset. Like, what do you mean? We're educated. And he said, what, if you can read and don't read, then you might as well be, be illiterate. Think about it for a minute. I mean, we, we all in America, most everybody learns to read. But then how often do people actually read? They don't actually use what they know how to do. So in a, in a sense, they might as well not be able to read because they don't. They don't do it. Literally, application is everything. The idea is to put something to use. Something that you already have, actually use it. Don't let it just sit there. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of James. I'm going to give you actually a challenge or a request or plead with you, whatever it would work for you. What I would like you to do for the next couple of weeks is to read the book of James through a few times. 
It's not really that difficult. It's not a very long book. It's very simply written, uh, very practical, very... I, I think you will enjoy it, especially if you, just, if you just determine, you know, take... It would probably take you 15, maybe 20 minutes and just read it through from beginning to end. And if you did that a few times, I think you would find a lot of useful, useful things. So what we're going to look at is how to apply your faith, knowledge, and understanding of Scripture to your life. Let me, let me continue this point just a little bit. I don't know if you knew this, but over 100 million people in the United States are in church every Sunday. 100 million. That is more people than actually attend all NFL games combined, and in most cases, any sporting event combined. Now, most of us think of, you know, you see a stadium full of people, and maybe you see that if you watch Joel Oldstein on TV, he's kind of got that, you know, arena full, and there's some churches like that. But if you add up all the churches like ours, and, you know, the average church size in the United States is still around 90 people in a church. You know, there's so many more churches smaller than that, some larger. And if you add them all up, and you think about that many people, it makes you wonder, if that's true, then why is there so little influence on society? Now, I'm going to keep coming back to this, so please don't get you know, frustrated and say, he said that already. But here's what I'm going to say. The reason is we don't apply it. We hear it. We just don't apply it. We know it, but we don't do anything with it. We have it, but we never open the app. Does that make sense? Let's look at something else. The Bible. The Bible is an amazing book. And I know, how many, let's do this for a second. And I'm not trying to, this is, there's no, again, no judgment attached to this at all. I'm just curious. Uh, let's, let's start with this. How many have two Bibles? Just raise your hand. How many have three, four, five? My hand's still up too, by the way. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, uh, eleven. She's like, <laughs> yeah, twelve. No. Okay, now are you a collect? Do you collect? Oh, I do, so I, I was cheating, but what? Oh, yes and no. Okay. But you'll notice that we, as Americans, we have a lot of Bibles. And maybe you didn't know this, but the Bible is the most published book. It's so much, so often it's published, over 500 million published last year. It's, it's the first and most printed book in history. And I'm sure you're familiar with the, the Wittenberg Press was the, the first movable type press that was ever invented. And they, the first thing they printed on that was a Bible. Now, what's interesting about that is the Bible has been printed in countless languages, we have so many translations. We have transliterations. We have paraphrases. We have it in children's language. We have it, if, if you like the, the sound of King James in formal language, you can read it that way. We have Bibles that tell you helps. We have Bibles with interlinearies that give comparisons to verses. We have parallel editions. The amount of opportunities we have for Bibles, again, makes me wonder, why is there so little influence in society? I mean, I... You can still find Bibles almost in almost every hotel room. They're there. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing how prolific this book is. And yet you wonder, why is it that it hasn't had more influence? And again, I'll tell you, it's because of the application. We're not applying it. We're not opening it and using it. It's not actually doing anything because it's just sitting there unopened, unapplied. Now, I don't want to be offensive. That's not my goal, but but I know the next few things I'm going to say may offend somebody, and I'm sorry, but, but I want you to think. That's why I'm trying to challenge you just a little bit. And the first thing I'd like to just point out is belief doesn't really change anything. Now, first you might say, oh, that's not true. I mean, you've got to believe. The Bible says believe and you will be saved, which is true. 
But you need to understand something. There's a difference in, you know, the Bible was originally re- written in an Eastern context, not Western. Those, those people were not Greeks and influenced by the Greeks like we are in Western society, not yet. So when this was written, their idea of belief had inherent in the word was action. See, they didn't, they didn't measure whether or not you believe something unless it actually changed the way you behaved. Now for us in America, we, we compartmentalize those things. And we have it in a sense where we say we can believe something, but then it doesn't change anything or we don't do anything. But in their way of thinking, that wasn't how it worked. It actually had to be tied to action or they didn't think you believed. The same thing, by the way, this is just an aside, it's true of of the way that they measured learning. Here in the United States, we do learning based on whether or not you can wrote, memorize something off of a test and write it out. But that's not how they did it. What they considered is if you had learned it, that meant that you could do something with it. You could practically apply it. Totally, totally different way of thinking. Belief doesn't change anything again unless it's applied and lived, unless it actually makes a difference. Let me, let me get a little more clear with this. Theology itself doesn't save anybody. It doesn't. One of my favorite theology professors, he was from South Africa, so he had a really cool accent, and as he would talk, he would, he would get all emotional. You know, and we're in school, so we're trying to learn things, you know, in our head. And he would get up there and he would just, he, he would start preaching. And then he would say, uh, theology here means nothing. It doesn't save you. Theology here saves you. And I remember sitting there, you know, and he said it so often. We're like, okay, yeah, yeah, here, here. But to be honest, there's a point, I think, where all of us as We just start to think, the more you know about the Bible, maybe the more spiritual you are. That's not true. It's not true. Sorry, because the difference is whether or not you apply it. You could know the least amount about Scripture and yet apply it the most and be far more spiritual. The truth is, just the amount of knowledge or just that you have the right names in place, none of that matters. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change your life for the better or the worse. Unless you apply it. Unless it makes a difference that way. Do you ever think about this? Do you know that the devil has good theology? I mean, he's evil and all, but he still knows who God is. And he knows what happens. He just wants to take you with him on the way. I I guarantee you, he knows the right theology. And theologians can argue about, you know, how the Trinity works. And they can argue about, you know, different churches can argue about the way they do church and all that. But in the end, I bet if we got the devil here, he could sort it all out. But that doesn't make him Christian doesn't change anything. Look at what James says in 125. If you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Did you catch the do what it says part? That's the app. That's the apply. I love this about James. And I challenge you, if you read James through, I think you'll enjoy it as well, because you'll find out he's just super practical. He says it how it is. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't try to fool anything. He just says it right out there. If you do it, God will bless you with it. Did you know church doesn't save you? (laughs) Now, maybe it's just me, but I have to be honest. If I'm honest, I'll tell you that there have been times where I felt like my church was a little better than other churches. Can we be honest? Right? Seriously, did anybody else drive by like a, can I name names? Anybody ever driven by like a Methodist church and thought, well, they're not real Christians, right? Nobody else has thought that? Seriously? 
How about this? I, I went to college. Um, when I first went to college, I was pre-med, and I went to Cal Poly Pomona. It's a state school in California. And um, I got right involved with Krampus Crusade for Christ. And um, my campus Bible study leader, the, the way they do it, we did uh, Bible studies in the rooms, and they had a meeting midweek and all that. And my Bible study leader, his name was Dave Johnson. I'll never forget him. Great guy, very, very smart. He was an electrical engineer. And I remember one time as we were talking, I found out he was Catholic. And I thought, how could this guy be leading our Bible study? Probably ain't even Christian. I'm serious. I know none of you would think that. Some of you are looking at me like, you're so offended. Okay, well, the truth is, I thought that. And then as I sat there week after week, not only did I really like him, because he was really a cool guy, and smart and funny and all that, but I realized this guy's relationship with Christ is way better than mine, way deeper than mine. Whatever knowledge he had about Christ and his relationship, he was applying it way, way more and way better than me. So I remember talking to him one day about it. And I just said, man, I have to be honest. I got to apologize. I really um, judged you. And we talked about it. And he laughed and he said, yeah, I get that all the time. He said, yeah, I'm probably the only Catholic in Campus Crusade for Christ because it's actually mainly a Baptist organization. In fact, once they found out I was Pentecostal, they didn't want me to do a Bible study anymore later on. But, but as Dave and I talked, I just asked him, I said, well, if you believe this and you trust God like this, how do you reconcile that with what the Catholic Church teaches and all that? And, and this is what he said. He goes, when I was in the Catholic, he goes, as a Catholic, I learned all these things. I found out all these things. But when I found out the meaning behind those things, he said, I found some, some depth with Christ that I had never experienced before. And so I asked him, I said, well, why didn't you leave that church? And, and I love what he said. He says, if I left, then who would be there to reach them? There's so many people. And then he just said, Dennis, he goes, you know, you don't realize there's so many really real Christians in there. And yeah, they go to church and confession. I do all that, but they really, really believe. They know who Jesus is. He's their savior, one and only. They pray right to him. He saved them. And he went down the list. I felt so silly because I was under the impression that it was just our church, just our denomination, some was of God alone. In fact, I've heard preachers say this from the pulpit. You know, like they'll say something like, oh, they'll introduce a missionary and say, it's the only Christian witness in this country or in this area. Then you find out, well, there's a lot of missionaries there, just not assemblies. The church doesn't save you, though. I was talking about this with actually uh, Pastor Nick and John and I were out to lunch, and we were just talking about some of our experiences growing up in church. And I can honestly say some of the meanest, meanest people I've known were church people our church, not this church, of course, but church I was growing up in as a kid. The people who I saw with the most hypocrisy, they were the ones in church. I mean, I didn't know a lot of people outside of church. That's who I knew. That was my life. And honestly, if that's the case, I remember there's a lot of times where I would just think in my, you know, little pea brain as I was growing up thinking, wow, is that it? Church doesn't save you. I mean, if church saved you, it'd be the same. I mean, we just might as well people get people in the door but that's not how it works. People hear the word every Sunday, but they don't apply it. You ever think about that? Some people, I mean, you, I think some people, they do it like this. They get the idea that going to church is as if you're applying what you heard in church, just that you went. Like, it's just enough that we went. <laughs> like, a few years ago, I was helping out uh, with the children's ministry at our church we were at, and uh, we had a rule there that if you came to church more than 30 minutes late, 30 minutes late, that you couldn't check your kid in. 
Because if you did, then the, the, the whole Sunday school thing and the children's church thing they were trying to do would be disrupted. And the kid, you know how it is when you first walk in and you, you know, kids are a little active and stuff and then they need to settle down. And so it just disrupts everything. It throws everything off and the teacher's got to regroup. And, and 30 minutes late, that's late. To, to, me, to, me, to me, a little early is late. That's just me. So 30 minutes late. So I remember one time this lady tried to bring her kid into church. She was 45 minutes late. And she was yelling, kind of arguing with the, with the poor volunteer out front who was telling her, I'm sorry, you're, you're, she said, you're 15 minutes past the deadline. So the lady grabbed that and she said, I'm only 15 minutes late. So she was yelling and arguing. And so when I went out there, I mean, it was loud. And I was like, what is going on here? And she said, and so we're talking, she's, she's 45 minutes late. I said, you realize church is only gonna go on for like another 20, 30 minutes, right? <laughs> you're not even gonna make it. You're here arguing. It's going to take you 10 minutes to get over to the main service. You know, and she goes, this is what she said. I made it. I'm like, whoa. I remember thinking, you made it? Is that what it is? You just made it? She goes, I got all ready. And she went into all this detail and did my hair. I mean, she, but I made it. Well, you know what? Yeah, you did. But you're not going to apply it because you didn't get it. That's not what it's about. It's not about just getting in and checking your card. Don't merely listen and deceive yourselves, James says. Self-deception is huge, isn't it? We're good at that. We're good at that. We want to be good, so we're good at self-deception. And I think we're actually also pretty good at deceiving each other to some degree. Think about, remember church clothes? Remember that idea? And we, we don't do that a lot here you know, at Crown Point, but I remember you know, the Sunday go to meet and close. You guys know what I'm talking about? What was that about? I mean, part of it was showing respect for God's house, for the church, for whatever. But then part of it starts to become, we're trying to show and make it look like we're all good and everything's cool when it's not. And we put on a face that shows that there's nothing wrong when that's not really how it is. And I wonder sometimes if we wouldn't have more of an experience with God and get more to apply to ourselves if we were a little more honest about where we're at and what was going on. Having faith in Christ and being a Christian is not something you just say. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without deeds is useless? Another way to say this is talk is cheap. Or another way might be what you do, your actions speak so loud, I can't hear a word you're saying. You ever heard that before? You ever heard somebody that, that their facial expression and their body language doesn't match up with their words? You ever seen that? They're so angry, and then they're trying to talk nice. <laughs> it just doesn't fit, right? But we do that all the time. We say things, but then we don't act it out. I mean, it's meaningless. Talk is cheap. People say things all the time. Let me, let me use another example, an example that maybe some of you can relate to. And I have some friends. Okay, I'll just be honest. I'll be honest right up front. I am not the kind of person who, who follow, like, uh, how do I say it without, I don't want to offend any of you but who, who might be like this, but I've never, I'm, I'm, I'm not one to like follow an actor or a singer or have a, like I don't, I just, maybe I'm, I don't know. I just don't do that, never have. So friends of mine who do, you know, I might point out, maybe I'm just a jerk, but I'll point out something about their lives, you know, like maybe, it's, let's just go back in time, Jim Morrison, you know, I had a friend who was really into Jim Morrison and the Doors. 
And it was pretty easy to point out some moral issues with Jim Morrison. <laughs> and this friend of mine said, yeah, but did you know he said, and then he told me some line he said about Christ. What? <laughs> so what he said negates everything he was all about? Are you kidding? Are you serious? One phrase can change it all. And we do this with modern, you know, singers or whoever. If somebody could be, somebody could be accepting an award at a singing show or whatever, and they get this big award, and they'll say, I want to thank Jesus for, so everybody's like, oh, great, they're Christians now. And, uh, no, they're not. They're, they're not. Their life doesn't show any of that. But I think we're so afraid today to judge people or to be judgmental that we want to believe what they say, and it's wrong to look at what they do. But James is saying, mm-mm, what they say better match up with what they do. And I don't want to hear what they say. I'd rather see what they do. I'd rather you be quiet and let your actions speak. That's what he's trying to say. How about this? Uh, it's not something you feel. Now, I know we've talked about feelings before, but being a Christian is not about feelings. Emotions don't equal faith. Now, I've seen people who are very emotional in their response to Christ at the altar, and I'm fine with that. I, I may not be like that. I had a good friend of mine. She's, a, uh, she's actually the children's director for the Southern Missouri District, but we used to live next door to each other. We were on staff at the same church. She was children's pastor. I was youth, and, and um, she, uh, she used to say, Dennis, you're gonna dance in the spirit someday. God's just gonna make you do that just because you act like this. I said, well, okay, but... That's fine for you, but I don't see that happening because that's just not my normal response. And so we, you know, we would tease each other back and forth about it. But here's the thing. No matter what, your emotions don't equal your level of faith. I heard this one preacher one time said, I don't care how high you jump. I just want to see how straight you walk when you hit the ground. I love that. How loud you shout. You could shout. I don't care. I just want to see your life match up with your shout. That's all. I want to see it be all in one and the same and consistent. <laughs> Crying does not equal change. I know that's harsh, isn't it? And, you know, as preachers, we joke all the time, especially youth pastors will joke and just say, did you make them cry? Okay, good service. Because does that really matter? Yeah, maybe, I don't know, but not really. I mean, I don't want someone to just make some emotional appeal. I don't want to tell a story that's going to make somebody cry and then... That doesn't change anything, not really, not at the end. You know, years ago, we were at a big youth convention, and it was huge, and these two girls had gone who I was so glad they went because I knew they weren't living for Christ. They had been in church a long time, kind of back and forth, and they signed up and went, and they went, and they went to the services, and I was worried. You know, I was telling their, their room leader to keep an eye on them because I'm figuring they're going to meet some guy and sneak out, and none of that happened, and then it was one of the last nights, you know, in big altar call, and they're crying, but they're not going up front. And so I went over and said, why aren't you guys going up there? And they said, we've gone up there every year since we were little, and we cried, and we said we were changing, and we never changed. And I don't want to be a hypocrite anymore. Man, I respected them. I still wanted them to cry and change, but I respected them because they got it. They figured it out. It's not all about the hype and the hysteria, and you know what it's about? It's about really living it afterward. Yes, you can be emotionally charged and, and it can grip you and, and emotion is important to push you in a certain direction. But once you get there, if you don't live it, 
not impressed. Sympathy or empathy, feeling for somebody's pain, doesn't feed them. You can feel sorry for someone all day long, but if you don't do anything, James says, you haven't done anything. It's also not something you think. I love uh, debating about religion and even you know, Christianity and practice and faith. I mean, I love that. I love that kind of stuff. And I have former students who really love it too and, and friends of mine, and sometimes they'll kind of get into it. Um, how many of you have Facebook? How many do not? How many think it's of the devil? Oh, all right. It's good both of you do think that. Okay. Well, I remember year, a couple years ago on Facebook, somebody said something on my, I, I had written something, and then one of these guys wrote something, and they start arguing about religion. And it was fascinating. But then I got to thinking, and as I was looking at it, they're not convincing anybody of anything. No life is changing here, nothing for the positive. I just deleted all that. And I don't let anybody do that on my stuff because that doesn't change anybody. You know, there are a few examples of people intellectually choosing to follow Christ. Probably the most notable is C.S. Lewis. A phenomenal story. If you want to read a great book by him, it's called Surprised by Joy. It's a little play on words because he married an American lady named Joy after all this. But the surprise by joy part was him coming to faith in Christ. But for him, it was, it was largely a thinking, logical decision. He ruled everything else out and said, none of this else makes sense. This makes sense. And he wanted to be a Christian. Josh McDowell did that. I mean, there's a, there's a few other examples of that. Uh, Lee Strobel. But not very often does that happen. Yet, as Christians, we kind of have this knack, we kind of have this propensity to get puffed up in our knowledge and our thinking. And we act like if we think the right thoughts, then we're good. But that doesn't mean anything. It's also not just something you believe. You know, <laughs> believing is important but that doesn't change everything. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. <laughs> Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in fear. Is that a scary scripture or what? Isn't that frightening? Think about it for a minute. It's great that you believe, but that doesn't change anything unless your behavior changes it. Real faith is something I do. It's something I do. You actually have to apply it. It's active, not passive. Let me give you another example, and I should have asked Nicole if I could tell the story, but a few years ago, Lily was smaller, and um, they were a little hesitant to get on the escalator, and as they were getting on the escalator, Lily stopped at the last second. They were going down the escalator. So Lily backed off at the last second. Well, Nicole started going down. Well, they were at like a Barnes and Noble, I think over at Zona Rosa, and Nicole didn't want to leave it up there by herself, and Lily starts crying, because she feels like, oh, mom's leaving me, and she's sinking down. What if Nicole was passive right then? What would have happened? She would have gone down, right? Our life is like that. It's like a down escalator. And you're trying to run up the down escalator. You can't live it passively. It doesn't work that way. You can't say, I believe that that's the right way to go up there toward Lily. It doesn't do anything. You don't go anywhere. Unless you actually do something, you have to apply your faith. You have to put that faith into action and actually effort to run up the escalator. 
which Nicole did, and she saved Lily, and it's a great story, and Lily still talks about it because it was traumatic. I'm not recommending him you try it. You guys all, has anybody been to Niagara Falls? I have yet to go there. I'd love to go there. Anybody want to go there? Is that like one of the things you want to do? I definitely want to see it. There's a, uh, I've never been there, but it's massive. You can see how massive it is right there. In, uh, in 1859, so a very long time ago, 1859, there was a, na- a man named Charles Blondine. Has anybody ever heard of him? He was actually very famous in 1859. He was a famous tightrope walker. And uh, here's a picture of him over Niagara Falls. This is what he did. He stretched a rope 1,100 feet. It was, the rope was pretty large. I mean, three and a quarter inches in diameter, 160 feet above the water. And he did it on 30th, June 30th, 1859. And he went back and forth a couple of times. And then he did a bunch of theatric variations. I think going over once would have been amazing. You guys, I mean, I, I was amazed to even hear the story. He did it blindfolded. He did it with a sack over his head. He did it with a wheelbarrow. He did it on stilts. <laughs> he went halfway and cooked and ate an omelet. And then standing on a chair with only one chair leg on the rope. Then he did this. He went to the crowd and he said to the crowd, how many of you think that I could go across this rope now with somebody on my back? Guess what? After they'd all seen that, what do you think they did? Oh, yeah, yeah, you can do it. And he goes, who will be the man then? And they all put their hands right back down. (laughs) Did they believe it? Not really. They believed it, but not enough to risk their life. I mean, you could see in that picture... I mean, that, you would die, no question. That far above, you're going to die, right? But did they believe him? Did they think he could do it? I'm sure they thought he could, but were they ready to apply any of that to their actual life? No. So he said again, who thinks I can do it? You know, and these guys were total showmen back then. I mean, this is, you know, this would have been a great time to just see showmen. And everybody raise their hand and cheers. Who's going to be the man? And they all put their hands back down. Guess who had to go across with him? His manager. And his manager did it. This is a picture, this is an actual photograph of him crossing, just so you can see how far out he was. And then this is a picture of his manager going across. His manager literally did go across and he carried him the entire way across. That was real faith because it was faith he put into action. Totally different than the rest of us. Now we've talked, and I know you've heard this since you were a child about about being living letters you need to be the living Bible to people who watch your life. The only way that happens is if you actually apply it, if you actually open it and use it. It's one thing to have all these things, to know all these things, but it's a totally different thing to do it. Jesus said, now that you know these things, you would be blessed if you do them. As we get ready to close tonight, I want to ask you, Let's do some math together. I know math isn't very emotional or spiritual or anything, but I'm just curious. How many of you would say um, you went to church probably once a week this year? Would everybody say that? Uh, raise your hand, though. I mean, let's, let's be active, not passive. Okay. You've been to church probably once a week. Now, a lot of you have been to church twice a week. You're here on a Wednesday. That's, you're probably here Sunday. So a lot of you probably been twice a week, but you've been at least 
And let's round it down so math is easier. 52 weeks in a year. Let's say you've been to church 50 times this year. That's fair, isn't it? At least. Okay, having been to church 50 times, let's just say then that you've heard 50 sermons. Now, let me just ask you a question. Of those 50 sermons, how many of those do you think you've actually applied those things to your life and you've walked in that, lived it? Okay, let's, let's expand it a little bit. How many of you have gone to church more than one year? How many have been in church two years, three years, four years? We're talking 200 sermons now, guys. Five years, six years, 300 sermons. I've heard it said that we're overfed and undernourished as Christians. And it's not because the word's not out there. It's not because you haven't been fed or had, the, had it there. That's, that sounds like this phone. It's because you haven't applied it. Nick, would you come and, and uh, lead us in some worship for a few minutes? Here's what I want to encourage you to do tonight. If you would just shut your eyes for a second, and I would like you to think about this. With your eyes closed for a minute, I know that what I've been saying tonight Probably as we've been talking, there's been a few times where you thought maybe the Holy Spirit has spoke to your heart and said, yep, remember that thing you heard that you thought you were going to change and you didn't? You need to apply that. Maybe, maybe as you've been hearing what we've been saying tonight, that you've thought, man, I, I want to apply more of this. God, I'm sorry. I want to live a better life for you. Let me encourage you with this. We're all in the same boat here. Every one of us, you, me, Pastor Nick, every single one of us in this room struggle with the application. So with your eyes closed for a minute, understand that, that this is a, not only a common struggle, but it's a struggle that God wants to give you victory in because he wants you to live it. He wants that for us. He wants our relationship with him to be fulfilling, one that, one that is consistent all the way through. So here's what we're gonna do as a group. I'm gonna pray, and I, I just want you to, uh, to pray along with me. Don't, don't listen to me pray. Just kind of pray your own prayer. But what we're gonna do is ask that God would forgive us for falling short in these areas that we haven't applied to him. And that as we continue to look at this book and the things that, that James give us, gives us to apply, that we will actually open these apps and make them work for our lives. So pray along with me. Father, I'm so sorry for where I've fallen short in these areas. I know that, I know that you, you want better for me and that I know that I can do better in these areas. God, I just ask that you would come alongside me right now and my friends in this room and help us to live for you. God, I pray that you would help us to apply the things that we've heard even tonight, but also the sermons upon sermons that we've heard, the things in your word. God, as we open your word and read it, I pray that you would help us to apply those things to our lives and let it literally change the way we walk, the way we act, the way we think and react and behave. And God, I pray that people would see it and see the difference and know that you're real because of the way we live. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.